I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, I want to talk more about UFOs. And since last week's potentially debunked UFO edition bummed a few listeners out, I wanted to talk about some UFOs that aren't so easy to dismiss. Some of these stories go back to the 40s and have yet to be explained. Now, I researched each of the following stories looking for explanations And a couple had sort of explanations, but they were so easily refuted. These supposed explanations, mostly by the government, were so easy to disprove and dismiss that these stories easily were added to tonight's list. I'm talking about UFO incidents that have been around for decades that have yet to be explained. And tonight, we're starting with this one. They're known as the Lubbock Lights. On the evening of August 25th, 1951, three science professors from Texas Tech were outside in Lubbock, Texas, when they looked up and saw a semicircle of lights flying above them at a high speed in a U-shape. Over the next few days, dozens of reports flooded in from across the town. Texas Tech freshman Carl Hart Jr. even snapped photos of the phenomena, which were published in newspapers across the country and even in Life magazine. Project Blue Book investigated the events, and their official conclusion was that the lights were birds that reflected the luminescence from Lubbock's new street lamps. Now, many people who saw the lights, however, refused to accept this explanation, arguing that the lights were flying too fast. Remember this. They wanted you to believe that they were, they, they were birds that were reflected in the brand new street lamps in 1951. Go outside and take a look at any street lamp. Watch a bird fly over. Does it look like a string of UFO lights? No, it doesn't. But anyhow, back to the story. The Lubbock lights, which again were seen over the city of Lubbock, Texas, from August through September in 1951. Now, from all the research I can find, this one is the first known sighting of the lights. And it was August 25th, 1951, at around 9 p.m., And this is the one I was just talking about where three professors from Texas Technological College were sitting outside when they looked up and to their astonishment, a total of 20 to 30 lights, bright as stars, but way larger in size, were flying directly over them and the yard. And I'm talking fast in just a matter of seconds. The professors could tell they weren't meteorites, nor were they anything natural like misidentifying stars or birds. And as they talked about what it could be, they saw a second similar group of lights flying silently overhead. And silently is important, don't worry. The three professors became determined to view the objects again and perhaps figure out exactly what they were seeing. On September 5th, 1951, all three men, along with two other professors, were sitting in Dr. Robertson's front yard when the lights flew overhead again. According to one of the scientists, The lights appeared to be about the size of a dinner plate, and they were greenish-blue, slightly fluorescent in color. 
They were smaller than the full moon at the horizon. There were about a dozen to 15 of these lights, and they were absolutely circular. He said it gave all of us an extremely eerie feeling. Now, this new scientist also claimed that the lights could not have been birds. In fact, he stated that they went over so fast that we wish we could have had a better look. The professors observed one formation of lights flying above a thin cloud at about 2,000 feet. This allowed them to calculate the lights were traveling at over 600 miles an hour. And remember that speed for later. We're talking 600 miles an hour. These are professors. These weren't drunk students on the college campus. These were professors. And speaking of students, on the evening of August 30th, 1951, Carl Hart Jr., who was a freshman at Texas Tech, was lying in bed looking out his window when he observed a group of 18 to 20 white lights, this time in a V formation, flying overhead. Hart took a 35-millimeter Kodak camera and walked to the backyard of his parents' home to see if the lights would return. Two more formations passed right overhead, and Hart was able to take about five photos in total. After he had the photos developed, Hart took them to the office of the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. They told Hart they would print them in the paper, but the editor would run Hart out of town if the photos were fake. So he assured them they were real, just as he saw them in the backyard. And these were the photos that I was talking about earlier that appeared not only in the newspaper, but also in Life magazine. In fact, the photos were soon reprinted in newspapers around the nation, and the physics lab at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, long-time listeners shouldn't be too surprised that Wright-Pat is again connected with yet another UFO sighting. Well, this laboratory analyzed the Hart photographs. After an extensive analysis and investigation, Lieutenant Edward J. Ruppelt, the supervisor of the Air Force's Project Blue Book, again, you should know that one as well, he traveled to Lubbock and interviewed the professors, Carl Hart, and others who claimed to have witnessed the lights as well. Now, his conclusion at the time was that the professors had seen a type of bird called a plover, which, as I asked you to remember, is completely ridiculous just due to the speed alone. I don't know a plover, but I guarantee it doesn't fly 600 miles per hour. The city of Lubbock had installed new vapor streetlights in 1951, and Ruppelt believed that the plovers flying over Lubbock in their annual migration were reflecting the new streetlights at night. Again, in my opinion, this is completely ridiculous. But I'm going to ask your opinion in a minute, so hold on. One local farmer who saw the lights on August 31st had observed some birds flying over a drive-in movie theater. The birds' undersides were slightly reflected in these lights. Another witness, Joe Bryant, had been sitting outside his home with his wife on August 25th, the same night on which the three professors had first seen the lights. And according to Bryant, he and his wife had seen a group of lights fly overhead and then two other flights. But unlike the professors, they saw a third group of lights and they noticed these lights were plovers and they could hear them as well. So that's the only witness so far who said he had seen the lights and saw them as birds. In addition, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer and one of Project Blue Book's scientific consultants, he contacted one of those professors in 1959 and learned that the professor, after careful research, had concluded that he had actually been observing the plovers. But there's more. The Hart photos were never proven to be a hoax. According to this professor, he said, quote, the Hart photos were never proven to be a hoax, but neither were they proven to be genuine. 
And that's a really odd statement to say. Now, Hart has maintained to this day that the photos were genuine. And two of the other professors claimed that the photos did not represent what they had seen since their object had flown in a U formation instead of a V formation. So there is a discrepancy there, but that definitely doesn't debunk the sighting, at least in my mind. So at this point in the story, we've got a few people all kind of connected, in my opinion, to Project Blue Book saying, nope, they're plovers. We have a farmer who's saying, nope, they're plovers or plovers. I don't know how to pronounce it. They're apparently really fast, glowing birds. But that same man, Rupelt, would later say they weren't birds, they weren't refracted light, but they weren't spaceships. The lights, then he trails off for a second, have been positively identified as a very commonplace and easily explainable natural phenomenon. It's very unfortunate that I cannot divulge the way the answer was found. Telling the story would lead to the identity of the scientist who finally hit upon the answer, and I promised the man complete anonymity. Which, again, in my opinion, is a complete cop-out of the statement. So let me give my side of why I think that the birds thing just doesn't fly. Pun intended. Well, the first is the fact that birds don't fly at 600 miles per hour. Even if they got the altitude wrong, it wasn't 2,000 feet, it was 1,000 feet, it was 3,000 feet. However they got that altitude wrong, it still wouldn't add up to a bird's speed of flight, which is usually 40, 50, 60 miles per hour. That's nowhere near 600 miles per hour. Also, how come the birds were never seen reflected by these lights ever again? It seems to me that the birds would become such a common annual sighting that it would be easily debunked. So I'm sorry, skeptics, until you find me a bird that travels at 3,000 feet and 600 miles per hour or 2,000 feet at 600 miles per hour. Hell, I'll even give you 1,000 feet at 300 miles per hour. Until you can give me that, the reflective bird story, in my opinion, is crap and just a quick way for the government to try and explain it away. Now, I will say that at that time, in 1951, the government did have a flying wing. And if you look at the photos, which hopefully I'll remember to throw up online, the photos do kind of look like a flying wing, but it doesn't quite match the size, and it definitely wasn't silent, not even close. It would have been so earth-shakingly loud that no one would have confused it for reflective birds. Plus, it also doesn't explain the dots in the formation photos. Now, these photos are just groups of dots or circles, and they don't look anything like the flying wing aircraft, so I just don't buy it. I'm not saying I know what these lights were. I'm just saying it's an unidentified flying object. They are not reflective birds. Like I said, to this day, there has never been a plausible explanation for this one, or any of the ones below this, for that matter. But when I did the research on this one, They were really grasping at straws with the whole bird story. Now, for the next one, let's stay in Texas and go to Levelin, Texas, in 1957. On the evening of November 2nd, 1957, two farm workers, Pedro Sacido and Joe Salaz, called the Levelin Police Department to report a UFO sighting. They said that they had been driving four miles west of Levelin when they saw a blue flash of light near the road. They claimed their truck's engine died and a rocket-shaped object rose up and approached the truck. According to Sacido, he says, 
I jumped out of the truck and hit the dirt because I was afraid. I called to Joe, but he didn't get out. The thing passed directly over my truck with a great sound and a rush of wind. It sounded like thunder, and my truck rocked from the flash. He said, I also felt a lot of heat. As the object moved away, the truck's engine restarted and worked normally. Not surprisingly, the police thought it was a crank call and didn't even bother to investigate it. But they weren't the only ones to see it because an hour later, motorist Jim Wheeler reported, quote, a brilliant lit egg-shaped object about 200 feet long, and it was sitting in the road. Again, this was around four miles east of Leveland, blocking his path. Now, he claimed his car died as well, and as he got out of it, the object took off and its lights went out. As soon as it moved away, Wheeler's car restarted, and from that point forward, it worked fine. So both witnesses' cars were inspected later on, and nothing was found to be wrong with either vehicle. And as if that wasn't enough, at 10.55 p.m., a married couple driving northeast of Leveland reported that they saw a bright flash of light moving across the sky, and their headlights and radio died for about three seconds. Five minutes later, Jose Alvarez claimed he met a strange object sitting on the road 11 miles north of Leveland, and his vehicle's engine died until the object departed as well. Not done yet. At 12.05 a.m., a Texas Technological College, now called Texas Tech, which is that same college I was talking about earlier, well, a student named Newell Wright was driving 10 miles east of Leveland when, quote, his car engine began to sputter. The gauges on his dash jumped to discharge and then back to normal, and the motor started cutting out like it was out of gas. The car rolled to a stop, then the headlights dimmed, and several seconds later, they completely went out. When he got out to check on the problem, he saw, quote, a hundred-foot-long egg-shaped object sitting in the road. It took off, and his engine started running immediately. So now we're at 12.15 a.m. The police department had gotten call after call after call, but they got one more. A farmer named Frank Williams, who claimed he had encountered a brightly glowing object sitting in the road, you guessed it, as his car approached it, the lights went out and its motor stopped. The object flew away, and you guessed it, the car's light and motor started working again. Other callers were Ronald Martin at 12.45 a.m. and James Long at 1.15 a.m. They both had the exact same things happen to them and their cars. So by this time, the police had to investigate. There were just too many calls coming in to ignore it, so Sheriff Weir Clem went out to check things out, and even he saw a brilliant red object moving across the sky at 1.30 a.m. Another official, Levelin's fire chief Ray Jones, also saw an object, and his vehicle's lights and engine sputtered. Then, everything went quiet. The reports apparently ended somewhere around 2 a.m. So just to give you an idea of how many calls, how many other people witnessed it, the Leveland Police Department received a total of 15 credible UFO-related reports, and Officer Fowler noted that, quote, everybody who called was very excited and very scared. Not surprisingly, these stories received national publicity, and Project Blue Book came to investigate as well. An Air Force sergeant from Project Blue Book was sent to Leveland and spent seven hours in the city investigating these claims. After interviewing three or four of the eyewitnesses, and after learning that thunderstorms were present in the area earlier in the day, 
the Air Force investigator quickly concluded that a severe electrical storm, most probably ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire, and just so you know, uh, St. Elmo's fire is not the 80s movie. It's a weather phenomenon in which luminous plasma is created by a coronal discharge from a sharp or pointed object in a strong electrical field in the atmosphere. Generally, those associated with thunderstorms or by a volcanic eruption. He said that the engine failures mentioned by the eyewitnesses were blamed on, quote, wet electrical circuits. That's crap. Complete crap. Now, a lot of the people in the area said that the Air Force investigator had only spent seven hours total in the area. He had obviously not taken the problem seriously and could not have found the correct solution. This, again, is the problem with Project Blue Book and the government. They find the quickest, in their mind, most plausible explanation, and most of them just turn out to be plain crap. So, what do you guys think? Does it sound like a thunderstorm or St. Elmo's fire to you? These people were all around the city. They all saw specific objects, none of which, to me anyway, sound like ball lightning or lightning or a thunderstorm or anything of this earth. What was it? Something like 10 vehicles. One, two, three. Yeah, like 10 vehicles were stopped within a short area, all independent, all within a two to four hour period. And something else that's interesting is that there was no lightning or thunderstorm and only a trace of rain that day. So there wasn't even the thunderstorm that Project Blue Book guy tried to tell us there was. Observers in the area reported an overcast and mist, but absolutely no lightning earlier in the day. But again, this is supposed to be up to you guys. What do you think on this story? Does this explanation seem even remotely probable? All right, let's leave Texas behind and let's go down under, where 20-year-old Frederick Valentich disappeared while on a 125-mile training flight in a Cessna 182L light aircraft. And this was over Bass Strait in Australia. And I'm so sorry, Australians, if it's Bass Strait. I'm just assuming it's Bass Strait. Please forgive me. And that goes for any of the Texas people. If that's not how you pronounce Leveland, I'm sorry. Please correct me. I don't know what I'll do with that new information, but, you know, correct me nonetheless. Anyhow, back to Frederick Valentich. This was on the evening of October 21st, 1978, while he was flying that Cessna light aircraft. He just disappeared. To give you a little backstory, Valentich was an experienced pilot. He had about 150 total hours flying time and held a Class 4 instrument rating. And what that means is he is authorized to fly at night but only in visual meteorological conditions. So basically, it had to be clear nights. He had twice applied to enlist in the Royal Australian Air Force, but was rejected due to inadequate educational qualifications. He was also a member of the Air Training Corps, and he was determined to have a career in aviation. Valentich was studying part-time to become a commercial pilot, but had a poor achievement record having twice failed all five commercial license examination subjects. And as recently as the previous month, he had failed three more commercial license subjects. The reason I'm bringing all this up is even though he had 150 hours total flying time, he obviously wasn't a crack pilot. He was no top gun. In fact, he'd been involved in flying incidents, for example, straying into controlled zones in Sydney, which that's not that big a deal and he received a warning, and twice he deliberately flew into a cloud. 
which I didn't know was illegal, but there you go. Now, again, I want to give you all the information about Valentich because depending on where you do your research, he was either the best pilot in the world or he was a bumbling idiot behind the wheel of a plane. Do planes have wheels? Anyhow, so where was I? Oh, yeah, he flew into a cloud and they were thinking about prosecuting him, which, again, is still weird to me. According to his father, Guido, Frederick was a huge believer in UFOs and worried about attacks from them often. So, besides his record, to me, that's the first red flag on this story. But let's continue. It was a routine flight when he radioed Melbourne Air Traffic Control at 7.06 p.m. So once again, this is nighttime, but it was a clear night, 7.06 p.m., and he reported an unidentified aircraft that was following him at 4,500 feet, but was told immediately there was no known traffic at that level. Valentich said he could see a large, unknown aircraft which appeared to be illuminated by four bright landing lights. So at this point, it seems like he's seeing it from below. He can see the landing lights, or, you know, he can see the undercarriage, I should say, of the aircraft. He was unable to confirm its type, but said it had passed about 1,000 feet overhead and was moving at high speed. Valentich then reported that the aircraft was approaching him from the east and said that the other pilot might be purposefully toying with him. Valentich finally said that the aircraft was orbiting above him and that it had a shiny metal surface and a green light on it. So all of what I just said is very important, so try to keep that in mind. Now, Valentich reported that he was experiencing engine troubles, and when asked to identify the aircraft, Valentich radioed, it isn't an aircraft. Then his transmission was interrupted by unidentified noise that was described by everybody who listened to it as being metallic scraping sounds before all contact was lost. The Department of Transportation investigation into Valentich's disappearance was unable to determine the cause, but that it was presumed fatal because the only piece of his plane that was ever found was an engine cowl flap, and that was found washed ashore on Flinders Island. So we know something was toying with him, and he said it isn't an aircraft right before the end. And get this. Some assume that the easiest explanation for this one is that he saw the reflection of his own aircraft in the water and that the reason it was above him was because he was flying upside down. Now, I'm sure you all are thinking the same thing I am. I find it really hard to believe because wouldn't you know you were upside down in the first place? Like, I get how you could flip the plane over if you're not paying attention to the horizon. I totally get that. It could be pilot error. But then you've got to realize you're upside down and flying upside down for an extended period of time, right? All the blood's rushing up to your head. I mean, it just can't be unnoticeable. It just can't, in my mind anyway. But that's just one. Two is, how is it reflecting off the water so clearly if it was 7 o'clock at night? And why did he see the landing lights? If he was looking up, and in reality, say he's upside down, so actually he's looking down... He's seeing his own plane's reflections. Why is he seeing landing lights? Shouldn't he be seeing the marker lights on the wingtips and the top of the plane? How are those landing lights? And finally, why did he say it isn't an aircraft and then just disappear? Okay, let's go over the transcript with air traffic control. It starts with Valentich. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? Air Traffic Control said, no, no known traffic. Valentich says, I am, seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. 
They asked, what type of aircraft is it? He says, I cannot affirm. It is four bright, it seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. So it passed over him. It's not hovering right above him like his reflection would be doing if it was the water. Anyhow, I'll continue on. So air traffic control says, Roger, and is it a large aircraft? Please confirm. Valentich says, er, unknown due to the speed it's traveling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? Air traffic control says no, says no known aircraft in the vicinity. Valentich then says, it's approaching right now from due east towards me. Let's pause there. Now it's approaching from another direction. It's not a reflection at all. Okay, let's get back into it. Uh, so he said, it's uh, approaching due east towards me. There was silence for two seconds. Then he says, it seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times and at top speeds and at speeds I could not identify. So again, his own reflection in the water while he's upside down is flying past him and flying over him two to three times at speeds he could not identify. Air traffic control says, Roger, what is your actual level? And that's when Valentich looks down at his gauges and says, my level is four and a half thousand, four five zero zero. So he's looking at his gauges right here. You'd think he'd realize at this point that he's upside down if that is the true cause. At this point, I'm just going to throw out the upside down stuff. It doesn't make sense to me. So air traffic controller says, and confirm you, can you cannot identify the aircraft. Valentich says, affirmative. Air traffic control says, Roger, stand by. Valentich says, it's not an aircraft. It is, and then silence for two seconds. Air traffic control says, can you describe the aircraft? Valentich says, as it's flying past, it's a long shape. Then there's silence for three seconds. He says, I cannot identify more than that. It has such speed, silence for three seconds. It's before me right now, Melbourne. Air traffic control says, how large would the object be? Valentich says, it seems like it's stationary. What I'm doing now, what I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light, and it's sort of metallic, like it's all shiny on the outside. Silence for five seconds. It just vanished. Would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it military aircraft? So this is the only point in the story, and I think this is where it actually came from when they thought, oh, he was upside down because of the green light. It's directly orbiting above him. That's the only time, and then it disappears because, I don't know, there's waves or something. But that's the only point where I could kind of see that. So I think that's where everybody's getting that, that assumption from. Anyhow, so aircraft controller says, uh, confirm the aircraft just vanished. Valentich says, say again. Air traffic controller says, is the aircraft still with you? Valentich says, now it's approaching from the southwest and that his engine is roughly idling. Okay, so we're getting to the very end. Air traffic controller says, Roger, what are your intentions? And Valentich says, my intentions are to go to King Island, Melbourne. That strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. Silence for two seconds. It is hovering and it's not an aircraft. And from here, there's silence for 17 seconds, then an open microphone with audible, unidentifiable, metallic scraping noises. That's 17 seconds of metallic scraping sounds. And then, like I said, he was never seen again. So, here you go. What do you guys think of that one? Was he only seeing his own reflection? And if so, was he flying upside down to see his own reflection? And if so... Did he crash into the ocean? Was he aiming his plane?
plane towards the reflection? I don't know. That one doesn't seem to make any sense, and in my mind, is still unexplained. So now let's go back to 1948 and Montgomery, Alabama. In the early hours of July 24th, 1948, Clarence Childs, or Chili's, but I'm going to say Childs, who is a chief pilot, and his co-pilot, John Whitted, were flying an Eastern Airlines Douglas DC-3 passenger plane near Montgomery, Alabama, at about 5,000 feet. And this was at 2.45 a.m., when all of a sudden, Child saw a dull red glow above and ahead of his aircraft. He told Whitted, Look, here comes a new Army jet job, and then very quickly the object closed in on the DC-3, and we're talking within seconds, In fact, both men later said they saw the object fly past the right side of the plane at a high rate of speed before it pulled up with a tremendous burst of flame out its rear and zoomed up into the clouds. They observed the object for about 10 to 15 seconds, and that's important. Both men stated that the object looked like a wingless aircraft. It seemed to have two rows of windows through which glowed a very bright light, as brilliant as a magnesium flare, and they claimed the object was 100 feet long and 25 to 30 feet in diameter. It was torpedo or cigar-shaped. And they said it was very similar to a B-29 fuselage with flames coming out of its tail. Only one of the plane's passengers, C.L. McKelvey, saw the same thing. He said he saw a bright streak of light that flashed by his window. Now, because every skeptic wants to know details, let me give you a couple. The night sky was clear. It was just four days past the full moon, and it was shining through scattered clouds. So there was no thunderstorm, no St. Elmo's fire. Get that out of your head. Now, as soon as they landed in Atlanta, Childs and Witted, rightfully so, reported their sighting to the Air Force. They were interviewed by personnel from Project Sign, which we talked about earlier, which is Project Blue Book. And the personnel found that the two pilots did disagree on a couple of details. Childs claimed to see a lighted cockpit, long boom on the nose of the object, and the center section was transparent. Witted did not see the cockpit or the boom, and instead, the center section being transparent, he claimed to see a series of rectangular windows. But I want you to put yourself in their place. They're both looking at this insane object just outside their plane. They're both looking at different aspects of that same object, so there are going to be a couple of discrepancies. But their stories match on everything else. And this is important. And one of the details that they both matched on was that neither pilot nor the passenger had heard any sound. And depending on where you do your research, some are going to say the plane hit turbulence when it saw the object. But according to the men, they said the plane was not affected at all by the object. So again, it all comes down to research. If you look at the quote-unquote wrong or right websites, depending on how you want to look at it, they're going to make up details, which makes the incident that much more impressive. And I could see why. It's really easy to find UFO stories online, but if you want to hook somebody, you got to make those stories interesting. you got to grab them. So you add more details here, you add more details there. One person sees that and adds it to his site. That person adds to that site. And it just keeps snowballing into an insane UFO story. But anyhow, back to this one. Now, immediately, the government tried to say that the men saw nothing more than a meteorite. But what kind of meteorite changes direction and then goes back up? It also changed speeds, 
And most importantly, has windows. If not a cockpit in windows, they both saw windows. So, and this is another one with a, quote, official explanation, but it doesn't fit. These were experienced pilots who saw a craft fly by and then fly up. Not a meteorite. It just doesn't add up. I'm sorry. And in that Project Sign report, this was my favorite line. They said, It will have to be left to psychologists to tell us whether the immediate trail of a bright meteor could produce the subjective impression of a ship with lighted windows. That's BS right there. Also, it's a meteorite, not a meteor. As they come down into Earth's atmosphere, they become a meteorite when they land, when they hit the ground. Meteorites don't have windows and don't fly back up. Okay, so what do you guys think? First of all, does this make up for the debunking on that last edition? For the people that were upset that I debunked Rendlesham. Sorry, guys. If you look at just the facts, Rendlesham is easily debunked. But anyhow, so here are four still unsolved UFO incidents that, as far as I'm concerned, are completely unsolved. And trust me, I already have more for another future edition, but I wanted to give you guys a taste of some of these. So I thought this is a pretty good amount for this week's episode. What do you guys think? Are these easily debunked? Are they reflective birds and upside-down planes and meteorites? And I forget what the crappy explanation for the first one is. What do you think? And while you guys are thinking about that, let me say thanks to all the new listeners who have stopped by the Facebook page, Paranormal Almanac, and said hi. I love hearing from you guys, and that brings me to my request. I want to hear from you guys. I want your ghost stories, your paranormal stories, your UFO stories, your spooky stories. Whatever you got, I want to hear them. The only thing I ask is that they're real. And if they aren't yours, at least let it be from someone you know and trust, like a relative, a best friend, your grandma, your mom, whoever. Because I've received a few that sadly are exact copies of creepy pastas or can easily be found on Google and are known made-up stories, mostly from Reddit. That's not what I want. What I want from you guys are the real deal. Because I want to do another listener paranormal story because I've been getting a lot of people said they really enjoyed that episode, so I want to do another one. So send me your stories. Send them over to me on Paranormal Almanac on Facebook. I hope you guys enjoy listening to these episodes as much as I enjoy making them. But please... Tell your friends and family to listen, and who knows, if this gets popular enough, I would love to do live shows somewhere in the distant future because I want to meet all you guys. I want to go out and about and meet everybody. I think it would be great to get together. And if I do do live shows, I definitely want your personal paranormal stories because I don't want it just being me up on stage. That sounds terrifying and, to me, incredibly boring. But once again, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig. And this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. <laughs>